revisiting some of the best games of the year with some of the best guests in the show's history. I'm Johnny Cullen. Welcome to my favorite game of 2021. Hello folks, how are you keeping? That haircut you got recently suits you. Did you get some new outfits recently? Oh, you got a new wardrobe? You look class in them. Keep it up friend, you look really good. Welcome to the first Game of the Year special episode of my favourite game in four years. Four years! We've not done one of these in four years! But, we're back. Season 5 was our big return following the last full season of the show in 2016 and the first full season of it under Play Diaries since it went live in 2020. The specials we did in 2016 and 2017 featured a tease of what was planned to be season 5 but turned into a series that we called The Lost Tapes. But with this special you'll hear several guests from a new and completely different guest lineup for what was the finished season 5 from earlier this year. But more on that in a second. A lot has happened in the 4 years since we did a Game of the Year episode of My Favourite Game to the games industry. Quite significantly so too. First, a new generation of consoles. PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X and S have now been on the market for a little over a year at this point and show both Sony and Microsoft going in different routes. Sony more traditionally, Microsoft not having all of its eggs in the hardware basket and focusing on services like Xbox Game Pass and Project X Cloud. And we'll get to that in a second. And that's to say the least of the growth of the Nintendo Switch, which only entered its first year in the last goodie special of my favourite game. Second, significant first party expansion from all three platform holders. Although Sony and Microsoft have been the biggest players on this front, Nintendo has played its part too with the acquisition back in January of this year of Luigi's Mansion 3 developer Next Level Games. But as mentioned, Sony, and in particular, Microsoft have been the big spenders. Sony finally put a ring on Insomniac Games and brought them in-house with its first year output on PS5 alone along with the success of the main Spider-Man game in 2018 and its future output with its sequel and a Wolverine game giving it a strong shout for becoming Sony's flagship studio. That's to say the least of other acquisitions of the likes of Housemark, Bluepoint Games and more. Meanwhile, Microsoft has started new studios World's End, focusing on Age of Empires, as well as The Initiative, whose first project is a perfect dark reboot that is being co-developed with Crystal Dynamics. Clarify, Crystal Dynamics is still a Square Enix studio. That's the set of least of acquisitions of State of Decay developer Undead Labs, Forza Horizon developer Playground Games, also working on a reboot itself with the return of Fable, Hellblade developer Ninja Fury, We Happy Few Studio Compulsion Games, Southern California RPG Powerhouses, Obsidian Entertainment and Exile Entertainment, and Psychonauts 2 developer Double Fine Studios. Oh, and that small matter forking out nearly $8 billion to buy Bethesda. And third, the way we consume games and how we play them has changed significantly. In an era where digital has become more prevalent, Xbox Game Pass has become the talk du jour of the industry with its Netflix download and play like scheme. 
to the point Netflix is actually getting in on the action itself. And for good reason. Not to mention the growing popularity of Cloud Gaming with Project X Cloud, the Cloud Gaming platform from Xbox, as well as the likes of GeForce Now from Nvidia and PlayStation Now. Although the less mentioned about Google Stadia over the course of the past few years, the better. So yes, a lot has happened and changed over the course of the past four years. But the template for a My Favorite Game Goody Special has not. If this is your first MFG Goody Special, here's how it works. Guests from seasons 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and the Lost Tips will talk not of their favorite game of all time, as is the norm of the show, but rather their favorite game of this year, 2021. So, enough talk, enough shite. Let's kick off my favorite game of 2021 and delve in to some of the best games of 2021. Let me set the scene and paint the picture here, so to speak. My favourite concert of all time, no this is not a backdoor pilot to some other podcast that I'm planning, is from 2010. It's at the Empire Music Hall in Belfast. The artist in question, Imogen Heap. A small intimate gathering of around no more than a few hundred people at least, as we heard solo songs from her as well as frou-frou songs. But before that Heap concert, for the answer to that question, You'll have to go back an additional two years, to June 2008, and a night of double rainbows, a guest set list from Baffer Lashes, and more, to Malahide Castle in Dublin, and the first night of the European leg of the In Rainbows tour by Radiohead. Quite fitting when you factor in those double rainbows. Radiohead is my favourite band of all time. And when I tell you I felt so many feelings that night of sensory overload, hearing some of my favourite songs ever, Lucky, The National Anthem, Paranoid Android, How to Disappear Completely, You and Whose Army and more, that's not hyperbole. It won't surprise you then too that my favourite album, again this is not a backdoor pilot for something new, is Kid A. An album that the band's guitarist Ed O'Brien said would need to be planned like an exhibition in order for the band to adequately put across its intent with the album in a live setting. Lo and behold, 20 plus years later from its launch and 20 years since Amnesiac, the other album born of the recording sessions that Kid A came from, the Kid Amnesia exhibition from Radiohead and Epic Games has managed to capture the feeling of sensory overload that I had that night at Malahide Castle in the best possible way. And while it's not a game in the traditional sense, it is something that has stuck with me in a big and meaningful way that no other traditional game has this year. So, yeah. Hi, I'm Johnny Cullen. I'm the creative producer and host of My Favourite Game, the editor of Play Diaries, and I'm the one kicking off this special. Because my favourite game of 2021 is the Kid Amnesia exhibition from Epic Games and Radiohead. When I played the Kid Amnesia exhibition a day or two after it came out, I was streaming it live on Twitch, but I was also playing it after a bad depression spell, so I was not playing it with the camera on. At least, that was my intent at the time. Because, who wants to see another sad man on the internet? 
But just as I made my way into the building, the opening notes of everything in its right place kick in. And I have this building sense of glee as each note plays, realising this is not going to meet the standard version of the song that begins Kid A the album. Feeling like this is going to be something special, I changed my mind and turned the webcam on. And frankly I'm glad I did. At that point, you could see the giddiness and excitement build on my face as I descended further into the exhibition and the music and stems changing in different rooms, exhibits and points in it. Everything in its right place moves into the drum snares of title track Kid A before going into the electronic portions of the song as you enter the main exhibit, a pyramid in the middle of it. Further and further in, I explored rooms of art and lyrics such as within Limbo a warehouse-like setting as pressure pads with the face of the Kid A bear set off numerous stems from Pactic sardines from Amnesiac. Walls upon walls of art from frontman Tom York and longtime collaborator Stanley Donwood from 1999 and 2000 and more before coming back into the main area and realising that actually I could go inside the aforementioned pyramid. And it's from within it that Kid Amnesia exhibition's best moments happen as I floated around an ambiguous space featuring an optical art piece that has How to Disappear Completely featuring a more pronounced strings version that's in the recent re-release along with Tom York's vocals on his guitar as well as Pyramid Song encapsulating me in a cocoon-like environment and you and Who's Army from Amnesiac and a group of stop-motion demons essentially running around as if they're doing some sort of ritual. By the end of that section, that selection of free songs back to back to back provided an immense sensory overload in the best possible way that I hadn't felt in games since playing Res for the first time ever a few years ago and playing it on PlayStation VR with Res Infinite. And by the time I found myself back in the exhibit surrounding the national anthem from Kid A after someone recommended I go back to it and find the orange pillar is not only enterable but has the song's iconic bass line and drum beat, I was sent into what can only be described as happy stimming to the point I was on a full-on cusp of an autistic shutdown because my brain was just overloaded with these feelings of utter happiness and giddiness. Something that was a far cry from where I was mentally when I started streaming an hour or so earlier. Kid Amnesia Exhibition is not a game, even when it's released for free on traditional gaming platforms like PC via the Epic Games Store as well as PlayStation 5 from the PlayStation Store. It says as such as you enter the building it's in and encourages the player and I say that term loosely in light of what I just said of it not being a game, to take their time to explore. But just because it isn't a game in the traditional sense, like a Forza Horizon 5, Deathloop or Maquette, doesn't mean it didn't provide a just as worthwhile experience that quote unquote traditional games usually would. If anything, this provided a more meaningful experience than everything else I played this year. Admittedly, if I wasn't the huge Radiohead fan that I am now, that experience would not stick and mean as much. But because I am, the kid on these exhibition feels meaningful to see these works, both artistically and especially musically, be brought to life through different but incredibly exciting ways. The kid on these exhibition may not be a game, but it is my favourite game of 2021 in spite of that.
Before going into our next game, we should at least acknowledge the recent report from IGN about developer Bungie and instances of sexism, toxic behaviour and more that were reported before this episode was produced. Bungie has said it is committed to making meaningful change in the studio, and it is worth noting that developers speaking within that IGN piece have said the studio is, albeit slowly, improving and building a better workplace environment. In the now four Game of the Year special episodes of My Favorite Game we've done, we've never had, until now, a live service game cited in one of these specials as someone's favorite game of the year. And it won't be the last one cited even in this episode. But to paraphrase recent comments from former Nintendo of America boss Reggie fils from the Game Awards, games used to be made, put onto a disc, shoved in a box, and that'd be it. That is very much not the case anymore. Games like Destiny 2 and other games as service titles are evolving, not just on a yearly basis with expansions, but on a monthly basis with seasons every few months, and even on a week by week basis with new content drops. Destiny 2 has earned its keep on a lot of games like it in the space as one of the best live games today, and is certainly one of the best shooters in the industry today thanks to regular content drops, quality of life improvements, and annual expansion drops, including the upcoming February 18th launch of its next expansion, the Witch Queen. That's to say the least of a multi-year commitment from Bungie on Destiny 2, including 2023 expansion Nightfall and 2024 expansion The Final Shape, which will bring things to an end for the first story arc of the game on the 10th anniversary of Destiny 1's launch. Even with a new IP in the works, Bungie is making sure that Destiny 2 has a lot going for it in the foreseeable future. Here's freelance games writer, consultant, and former Eurogamer editor-in-chief Tom Bramwell from the season 1 finale to tell you why Destiny 2 is his favourite game of the year. Hello, uh, I am Tom Bramwell. <laughs> I am a video games consultant and a former games journalist and my game of 2021 is... Destiny 2! Destiny 2 has become, I think, one of the most interesting examples of good storytelling in live service games um and it's kind of done this under the radar because i think most people for most people destiny 2 is just kind of this game going on in the background and it's for its community and you know yada yada who really cares there's so much other stuff going on but if you were playing it this year then you were treated to some really interesting stuff uh one of the best examples was season of the splicer which sort of ran through the middle of the year uh which ostensibly was a story about how a displaced group of um of aliens from this race of we call them the fallen um one of the four main enemy groups in <clears throat> in destiny 2 who are kind of uh, like and and sort of enemy and friend and whatever can be ambiguous at this point in these games um but they, they're seeking refuge in the last city, which is humanity's kind of final uh, fortress on, on Earth um, under the protection of the Traveller, which is the big glowing orb thing in the sky. Um, and this is really, in, like, the way they do this is really interesting because major characters that we've sort of dealt with for a long time and probably really like have to grapple with their prejudice in the face of this influx of, uh, of strange people in their streets and among them in their communities and some manage better than others and 
you see how their approach and their interpretation of everything evolves in the face of events and the presence of these outsiders. And obviously with all of the stuff going on in the world right now, that's a pretty uh, big story to be telling in what's essentially a sort of throwaway popcorn shooter. But the fact that Bungie doesn't shy away from it and doesn't pull its punches uh, is very impressive considering that virtually every other major sort of triple A uh, high production value action game goes out of its way to avoid taking any kind of side on these things. Uh, obviously Bungie has form in this area. You may remember that when they did their big uh, kind of direct style announcement last year, they began with uh, nine minutes of silence to represent the time that uh, it took for George Floyd to be killed by that policeman, which was extremely moving as a moment and not exactly what you expect from a major studio so good on them anyway this was a really fascinating story and the way they told it was really engaging and all of this um all of these events were kind of developing the meta story that feeds into next year's expansion which is called the witch queen um so in addition to the story like the activities they built around it were interesting uh they had these repeatable gameplay scenarios where players would kind of peel back different layers of possibility week over week as the story developed um, and uh, you know each of these things were kind of metaphors for the other and it just fed into itself very well and in addition to this naturally players could do all the other usual regular stuff in Destiny 2 uh, and being drawn in and sort of um, uh, really engaged by this stuff I just I found myself really getting more into Destiny 2 than I had for a while uh, and I you know kind of setting my own gameplay goals um, we you know to fill up the weeks and you can do that in so many different ways now there are so many different kind of vectors of engagement in this in this massive MMO FPS uh, one of the things I found myself doing was trying to unlock different catalysts for exotic weapons uh, which is essentially uh, kind of doing stuff with the most unusual and interesting guns in the game, which allows you to unlock powerful endgame perks for them. Uh, Destiny 2's also got really good at mysterious exotic missions, which are sort of hidden away in strange parts of the game and require lateral thinking and community collaboration to unlock. Um, so yeah, Bungie, you know, Destiny 2 probably looks and sounds very intimidating to people who haven't tried it yet and you know it definitely can be um but if you're you've ever been curious about it this is this for me i think is a really good time to try it out uh and you know the thing that's not often mentioned when talking about the oceans of content that are in this game is that the reason we all keep playing isn't the scale or the presentation or any of that really it's just it's the basic way that the game feels to play you know with the lowliest character and the cheapest rifle Bouncing around these planets, you know, zapping enemies is just so smooth and responsive and tactile. So yeah, it's been a great year for Destiny 2. I think next year could be even better based on what we're seeing for the, from promos for the Witch Queen. And I didn't necessarily imagine Destiny 2 would be my game of the year, but it makes me, as a long-term fan, it makes me very happy that it legitimately is. And that'll probably be it from me, I guess. Happy holidays, however you celebrate, and please, please, please stay safe. Bye.
Hello. Hello, my friend. How are you? Good. How are you? Just sort of struggling to sort of get my Skype together because I I, I was trying I was outputting out of my speakers and now I just sort of had to get everything together through the mic so I can hear it through the mic. So, um, okay. so that's why I was sort of a bit delayed. But I'm I'm good. Hello, I'm Chris Donlan from Eurogamer, and my favorite game of 2021 is Tome. To my absolute eternal shame, I still yet to get a chance to play Tome, a game where you explore a small world and connect with the world around you, as well as the characters within it, and take photographs to delve into this world that, as Season 2 guest Eurogamer Features Editor Christian Donlan puts it, is akin to a storybook. And if that isn't so my jam, especially when it's released on Nintendo Switch, as well as PlayStation and PC, I don't know what is. If you're just joining us for the first time in these goodie specials, rather than have Donlan record his contribution to the episode like everyone else, I hop on the phone and talk to him about his favourite game of the year. This year, it's Tome. I start by asking him about the game's charm. It, it, it almost it's black and white, it seems much more um, vivid in a weird way. It seems much more vivid and sort of probably because it's sort of starker and there's greater contrast, but it seems, it just seemed like such a bright, bright game when I was playing it. Um, yeah, it's a lovely, a lovely thing to look at. The other the key thing about Tom is obviously the, the photography aspect of it and I, lo I love that, I love that. I, that. Like that really sells me on uh, the game anyway, but like you, you, you be the, the last thing that sells me on the game. Although, you, to be fair, you did review it, so I, I feel like I should have been sold on it already. But like, sell, sell me a personal elevator pitch, like uh, on terms of that anyway, because like the photography stuff, it feels so much my jam. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think games that give you cameras are really interesting, aren't they? Because sort of cameras can, on a mechanical level, I suppose it can it can fulfil the sort of role that a gun does in games. But in cameras, especially in a game like Home. What you're encouraged to do is sort of spot collect put connections between things in the world. So a lot of people will ask you to take a, get them a picture of something. So you're sort of drawing these kind of connections between places. And actually, that's just the, the, the sort of start of it. Tom has a lot of ideas about what to do with the camera. But there is something inherently lovely, I think, about games in which you can take pictures, whether for the plot or just because you want to. That sense of sort of being, you feel more rooted in the world when you can stop and take a picture of it, I think. Uh, yeah, that, that's what it felt like, felt like to me. If there's no photography aspect of Tome, you lose a lot of the connectivity aspect of the game anyway, in terms of, you know, sort of oh, yes, finding, absolutely. Find, finding absolutely. yourself it's in a, the world. It's a world that is designed to be photographed and to have things in it which are, you know, there for you to think about taking pictures of, you know, or, or one, you know, it is a world full of these sort of connections. That it's it wants you to make with a camera, yes, definitely. I think what also really helps is there's very low intense stakes in it. Because again, it is just you going around this world, photographing these sort of sorts of moments anyway, like there's nothing high stakes. Yeah, I mean, I think stakes in games are often a bit sort of um, over-egged anyway. I mean, there's Zelda, you know, the world is coming to an end if you don't do the thing you're meant to do, but you still dash off and cook you know, recipes for 40 hours. So I don't think, I, I, I understand what you mean. I think what's really, what's really interesting is that, that sense that everyone in the world seems equally 
casual about things, I think. So yeah, actually no, I, I think you're right. It does sort of permeate the world. That sort of pleasant aimlessness to it. I think it's lovely. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, um, is there any other games that you think? Not even any other games, because like majority of games these days have a photo mode. Like, is there any other games like not necessarily like to? I'm sorry. Um, that you sort of explore and just sort of go about and photograph in the world, like Toam. Like, not yeah, necessarily uh, for the same reasons, but still. Umarangi Generation, which I also reviewed this year, and it's a real close tie between the two of them, could have gone either way, really. Umarangi Generation is another game about photographing the world, um, but it's a very different experience. It's much more political, it's got a very sort of urgent sense about culture. Um, yeah, it's a completely brilliant game. I think they're both fantastic. Um, and it's interesting they both came out this year. Umarangi originally came out last year, but it, it came on Switch this year. But they're both sort of, that sort of idea is in the ether. That idea of sort of interrogating the world a little bit and looking at its surfaces, I think is pretty, is pretty timely. I guess finally then, at least on Twitter, anyway, like, you mentioned it in your review for Eurogamer, but like, there was, there's a sort of sense of profoundness within Twitter and how it works in spite of that, actually. Yeah, so I think what I said in the piece was, because I reread it just now, and I think what I said in the piece was, what's really memorable and moving about it is how it doesn't have, it's that thing we were talking about, you actually talked about it when you talked about the stakes and how they weren't very very high. Because the stakes aren't very high, it's this, it's this game about domestic things. So, you know, um, someone's looking for something for their art gallery, someone you know it's a game about sort of lost socks or sort of someone's got a good spot on the beach or something like that do you know what i mean it's a game about these little things which aren't very profound but which really matter to people and as a sort of because like you were saying you know in, in, in most games when the world is at risk you know the world's coming to an end unless you do this one thing or whatever it's nice to play that sort of game where absolutely nothing's at risk and nothing is at stake and except for the things which are always at stake in life do you know what i mean like the next half hour's happiness or whatever I think that really moved me. Um, I'd completely forgotten I'd written it like that, but I think that's what I was getting at, probably. And I still, and I do still agree with. With a game like Tom, then, like, how do you go about building a world that is so easy to explore and fun to photograph? Then I've got no idea. I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting is they 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 break it down into little pieces, and a lot of the game is sort of learning the connections between places. And it often feels like that is actually a more re... I know open world games are seen as being the great sort of... the, the closest you get to reality because you leave your house and there is the entire world. There's no loading or anything like that. But I think games which break the world down into little neighborhoods like this one does, they actually get closer to the way that a lot of us experience the world as in moving from one place to another, even though there is this sort of contiguousness to it. I think um, doing that and having lots of almost things that they take from it tome almost looks like a children's book and it's got that kind of everything is sharply in focus everything is full of detail and you can take your time and just look across the page as it were and see all of these different things which are competing for your attention so i think it it probably does it i mean they are they they would answer that question far more interestingly than i would because other people who did it but um i think I think it's got a lot of, it's, it's learned a lot from children's books, it feels to me like it's learned a lot from that. It's learned a lot from sort of thinking about the world and the way we we process the world. You know, uh, a sort of, uh, the way you sort of your visual cognition works. They probably, it, it seems to understand all of that stuff quite, quite innately. Which is, probably means it's a lot of hard work. 
it, it feels like there it has a lot of heart to it anyway yes oh absolutely it's just a complete both this and Umarangi generation the name I'm probably mispronouncing it but um, both of those games are just absolutely heartfelt I think they're just wonderful they're the most sort of um, vivid and alive of games I've played this year both of them Disco Elysium was 2019's biggest critical darling after its PC release, but there was a clear hankering for more content on the game and to be able to play it on more places than previously before. What developer studio Zalm did in 2021 was Disco Elysium, the final cut, a new version of the original game that added voice work across the entirety of the game, new missions, story stuff and more on PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X and S, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One, as well as PC. How can you improve upon perceived perfection for the RPG genre? Disco Elysium The Final Cut is probably a case example of how to do just that. Here's Sunderlust Games founder and Mark of the Ninja and Firewatch designer Nels Anderson from The Lost Tapes to tell you why it's his favourite game of the year. I'm Nels Anderson, and I'm the founder and creative director of Sonderlust Studios, and my favorite game of 2021 is Disco Elysium, the final cut. While Disco Elysium technically came out in late 2019, the final cut was released this year, and on my birthday no less. Thanks, Studio Zalm. Everything positive said about Disco Elysium is true, and in the final cut, even more so, giving the game a voice literally and figuratively, fully creates a bridge to an experience genuinely like almost no other. Harry Dubois is an incompetent, sad, dedicated, radiant lunatic. The world's best worst cop. Or the worst best one. And Kim Kitsuragi. Never has there been another like Kim. There's nothing I want more than to earn Kim's respect, even though deep down, I'm not sure I deserve it. Disco Elysium completely eschews being a didactic morality play, or worse, another hollow chronicle of saving your village slash humanity slash the world from the Ravagers or the Vanquishers or some other great evil. Disco Elysium is messy. There isn't a right or a wrong per se. And it's because Revachol is messy. And it's because our world is messy. And that world is deeply familiar, yet foreign, like it's been shifted to the side from our own. You can still recognize it, but you don't know it. But, if you're lucky, by the end of it, you'll have been able to dance with her for a little while, at least. Disco Elysium left me different by the end. And it is, without question, my favorite game of 2021. 
the last time we did one of these specials in 2017, one of the games included was What Remains of Edith Finch, coming from unfinished Swan developer Giant Sparrow and the debut game from upstart publisher Annapurna Interactive. On the latter, I said the following. It also shows Annapurna Interactive as a serious player for interesting and unique stories in games. And certainly, they are the publisher to watch for next year, if not already. Since then, the publisher has grown from strength to strength, from the stupid brilliance of Donut County, the unofficial Heartbreak trilogy of Florence, Sayonara Wild Hearts, and the release this year of Maquette. The mystery of Town Lies and Kentucky Route Zero, the surprising in so many ways, but still incredibly brilliant The Artful Escape, and a ton more. Basically, Annapurna Interactive has not just gone from being the publisher to watch, as I said in 2017. It is now, pound for pound, the best publisher going in the industry today. And that's including any first party portfolio over the past two years, frankly. Hi. My name is Caitlin Tremblay, and I'm the lead narrative designer at Cappy Games, and my favourite game of 2021 is Last Stop. A few years following the launch of its debut game, Twin Peaks-inspired Silent Adventure Virginia, Variable State, with Annapurna, put out into the world its sophomore effort, Last Stop, a game that is very much London to its core with its characters, setting and writing, as four characters live different lives and stories in the city that subsequently intertwine by the end. Cappy Games lead narrative designer Caitlin Tremblay from Season 2 of MFG is here to talk of Last Stop as her favourite game of the year. Here she is on why that is the case. Last Stop, made by Variable State and published by Annapurna Interactive, is a speculative fiction anthology game that explores the lightly interconnected lives of strangers. It's a solid pitch, one that gives appropriate room to explore the weird things this game wants to explore. It's supernatural, it's character-driven, it's choice-based, and has some of the absolute best voice acting I've ever heard in games. Okay, so Last Stop has three main stories that you play in fairly evenly paced chapters. First off, there's Paper's Dolls, about a doting middle-aged father, his precocious daughter, and an obnoxious tech bro who get embroiled in each other's lives after the two adults get body swapped. Next is Domestic Affairs, about Mina, a highly powered, highly talented, highly mentally damaged secret agent whose life is unraveling as she contends with all of the messiness of living two different lives. And then finally, there's Stranger Danger, about teenager Donna and her friends who end up getting in way over their heads when they sorta accidentally imprison a man with supernatural powers who also happens to be related to people disappearing in their lives. They're all stories with their own levels of weird and their own level of supernatural horror. There's a lot in common with each, besides just the obvious plot points and contending with supernatural elements. Each story in Last Stop is filled to the brim with heart. This game isn't just a Twilight Zone send-up or homage, it's a game about how emotionally people get affected by the weird, unexplainable things that interfere with the course of their lives. It's about family and the struggles that being a part of a family involves. It's about love, it's about being messy, and it's about making the best choices you have in a sea of terrible options and trying to survive while maintaining what's important to you. Every time I try to pick which of the three stories is my favorite, I just can't. They're all so good in similar but different ways. 
Paper Dolls is a heart-filled human drama that lets men work through their feelings and see each other in ways that they would never be able to see each other before. Domestic Affairs is about how messy people with a lot of power can ruin people's lives while still portraying them as people and not just cartoonish villains. And finally, Stranger Danger is so desperately about trying to find your voice and happiness as a teen when you feel very alone, very isolated, and very unable to contend with things that are much bigger than you. It's the stories and the confidently way that they are told that makes Last Stop so enjoyable and so unable to be put down. I was obsessed with it when I was playing it. When I couldn't sleep, I'd spend the early hours of the day playing it. When I wanted to unwind from work, I'd go and play it. When I was looking for something to inspire me, yeah, I'd play it. <laughs> In terms of narrative innovation, it's not reinventing the wheel, but that's okay. The dialogue choices sometimes feel superfluous, but that's not what it's really about. It's about its story, its character, and those two things it executes on so impressively. Despite being a supernatural mystery thriller about some really difficult stuff, it felt warm to play. When I was playing it, I trusted the developers and writers so much that I could just enjoy the ride and not feel on edge or on guard throughout. I knew I'd walk away feeling really inspired and content, and I did. So at this point, I haven't really talked about the endings, but that's probably for the best. Last Stop is best experience without too much knowledge, in my opinion, and I feel like I've probably already said maybe too much. But I will say this, it's a game where one of the choices I made at the end still kind of haunts me. It's an ending I've thought about repeatedly since finishing the game. I want to know so badly how the rest of the story plays out after that ending. I want that sequel desperately. <laughs> I feel for the sacrifices I made, and I feel for the situation I put Donna specifically in, and to be quite honest, I haven't had a video game ending affect me like that in quite some time. So yeah, all of that is what makes Last Stop my favorite game of 2021. I can attest firsthand anyway for Annapurna Interactive producer Kelsey Hansen and her love for Apex Legends, the Battle Royale shooter set within the Titanfall universe from Respawn Entertainment and EA. Apex Legends has grown quite significantly though on its own two feet in the near three years it has been going. Less of a de facto Titanfall spin-off and more of a game in its own right. This year alone, three new seasons of content have come out, a Nintendo Switch version has launched and Apex is now seen as a core pillar towards EA's current lineup of live games. Apex Legends is also one of the first games as a service titles we've had mentioned as a game of the year in doing these specials, as alluded to when talking of Destiny 2 towards the start of the show. But as such games go, Apex Legends is a great one to go from. From Season 5, here's Kelsey to talk of it as her favourite game, and like I said, I can very much attest firsthand for her love of the game. Hello, my name is Kelsey Hansen. I'm a producer at Annapurna Interactive and my favorite game of 2021 is Apex Legends. Um, being a longtime fan of indie games and in general 
fantasy RPGs and open worlds. I never thought that I would one day say that my favorite game is a battle royale FPS. Um, I always played, you know, the campaigns of COD and Battlefield. Um, I played Blackout for a bit when it came out, but to be honest, I just wasn't that good at it. And it was very slow paced for me, or at least at the time, I didn't know that there could be kind of a fast paced online battle royale FPS. Um, but I do remember when Apex came out, we all sat down on our couch in the office and played it a bit. Um, we always tend to try out new games, and since PUBG was an office hit, we were already very intrigued. And, you know, other than the fact that it was Respawn in the Titanfall universe, um, there was something about it that felt so different than the other ones out there. Like, it's all about speed and verticality, and the teamwork aspect was... Um, something I'd never seen before because there was the introduction of the pinging feature, which now other battle royales have adopted, um, which I think is incredible. It's a, it's, it's, it's good for me because I tend to forego the microphone in online multiplayer games for multiple reasons, but particularly the potential online harassment, uh, that is unfortunately very common and will always be common. But I found with Apex, I didn't need to use my mic at first. So I could easily communicate with my teammates, you know, the general base goings on. And I slowly started using my mic once I got better and generally more confident in my skills. And now, especially in ranked, um, you know, gold or higher, I use my mic, even if my teammates remain muted, which is definitely a very frustrating thing. <laughs> So why is this my favorite game of 2021? Um, it might have something to do with the insane amount of hours I've put into it. Uh, I've played since season one. And I think for a game that I play almost every single night for three to four plus hours, I just have to name Apex as my favorite game. I love the speed, the maps. Apart from Storm Point, I'm definitely looking forward to the new season. The verticality, the teamwork, and in general, like, the strategizing that goes on with picking your characters and using their abilities in a tactical manner. It's really fun. I watch a lot of ALGS, and the competitive play of Apex is so incredibly different than playing pubs. So it's been really fascinating to learn about the different styles of play and to kind of use some of those skills that I see being used in my own gameplay to make myself a better teammate and player. I've also made online friends because of Apex. Um, people I've never met in person, but now text with or communicate with regularly, whether I met them when randomly getting them on my squad or from Twitch Apex communities, it's been kind of a wonderful thing that's come from me playing Apex. And another reason why I love it is it's a game I play with a friend and coworker. We spend a lot of time playing Apex together and since COVID and being remote and not seeing the people I love and work with daily, it's really nice to spend that time together. So yeah, here we are, Apex Legends. I just love it. My name is Dan Sito, and I am the International Social Media Communications Manager at Warner Bros. Games. 
And my favorite game of 2021 is a game that I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with. Um, and before I say what it is, allow me to explain. So this is a game that I've been quite eagerly anticipating. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's a fantastic game. But I, I can't overlook its flaws. And the main things that I've, I've issued with it is with its story and its characters. I find that the characters, one, are really, really dumb. Um, multiple times throughout the game, they they come into situations where they kind of know the answer and how to resolve these problems, but they ignore it, right? Up until the end, and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's the thing that we should have done. It's like, yes, you already knew that. Um, and I find that the story is quite contrived at times and that it basically it does a really good job of providing mystery and asking interesting questions. But whenever it comes to times to actually answer those questions, the answers are often the most boring answers out of all the possibilities, or at least all the possibilities I could think of. I always think of these really interesting things that this game could do with its story and what it wants to say and, you know, the past that it could do within this mystery. And it's like, oh, that's, that's actually what's behind everything. It's like, oh, that's not really that satisfying in my opinion anyway but it is also a really really fun game it's very unique the battle system is a jrpg uh maybe i should have mentioned that before um and its battle system is re you know really really unique and it's really good fun it's got a very addictive quality it's got tons of style the soundtrack just really it really slams and it's got a really good energy that really comes throughout the whole game and it just creates a world that you really want to stay in and just, you know, explore. And the way that the music really adds to, you know, the game's sense of identity and energy and permeates all other parts of the game as long, you know, its style and its look and everything to do with that. Um, so, yeah, my my favorite game of 2021 is Neo, The World Ends With You. <laughs> Nearly 15 years after the original game launched for Nintendo DS, and several re-releases and ports on iOS, Nintendo Switch, and PlayStation 4, Square Enix announced at the end of 2020 a surprise sequel to The World Ends With You. Known as Neo The World Ends With You, it featured a new story and a new set of main characters the player would encounter under a more modern Shibuya in Tokyo. Although key characters from the first game would also return for the game, which launched on PlayStation 4, Switch, and PC. Here's Warner Bros. Dan Sito from Season 3 on why it's his favourite game of the year. I'm a big fan of the franchise. I played the original game um, when it first came out 13 years ago on the DS, and I actually replayed it right before playing Neo. Um, and that's bit of the frustrating part that I find with Neo The World Ends With You is that, especially when you compare it to the original, the original does such a better job of telling its story and making its characters relatable and gross. The thing about Neo is that the characters don't really grow all that much by the end of the game. And, you know, maybe this is because the original game 
the world ends with you was on the DS and the handheld, and naturally as a handheld, it has to be a lot snappier. It has to be a lot, you know, it gets right to the meat of things because of the bite-sized nature that people play handheld games. So it really, really cuts to the, you know, right into the thick of things and asks the right questions, answers them quickly, but also asks more questions off the back of it, whereas Neo The World Ends With You is a little bit more like, I guess, console pacing, console game pacing. So it's like, it kind of drags things out a little bit and makes it kind of like, I think what the game wants you to do is like spend more time with these characters and in the setting to really kind of see them in their element. But the result is that it just kind of just drags. Um, and like I said, the, the story just does not go into interesting places like the as much as the original did but that being said this is still my favorite game of the year and as much as I've been talking about how much I find those aspects disappointing it is still one of the most unique games I've played definitely this year but even you know across all games I'd say Neo the World Interview is so is still so unique there is nothing else like it even the original the World Interview isn't the same as Neo Doors End With You, and I mean, obviously it's a different game, but I mean, like, that the quality of life improvements that Neo puts in really makes a difference in that, you know, not only making the game more fun, accessible, and, you know, adds into the layer of the gameplay, but it also adds an extra layer of, I guess, personality, vibe, all those other things. There's the non-tangible things that really add to the whole experience, and it's a lot more in a lot of ways, it's a lot more satisfying than the World End Review now. And I think my frustration with Neo is that I can see it being so much better by making a couple of tweaks. But at the same time, it's still a fantastic experience. It's still a brilliant game. And I want so many more people to play it and experience it because, yeah, I want, I'm, you know, I want this franchise to continue. I want more people to experience it because, like I said, there is nothing else like it. So if you've been on the fence, or even if you're not on the fence, you know, just give it a go. Did it, you know, I think there's there's um, free demos both on Nintendo Switch and PS4. So, and uh, your save data carries on with full game. So it's the beginning of the game, which, going to warn you, does start off quite slowly and might not give off the best impression. But if you stick with it, it's a fantastic game. I want more people to play it, and I hope you do too. Hazelite and EA put out It Takes Two back in the spring, and like past games from founder Joseph Farris, such as with Brothers and A Way Out, 
It was a critical and still success, even with its co-op-only mechanic around it. But the fact it takes two beat a lot of bigger critical darlings to the Game of the Year award at the Game Awards, including heavy favourite Deathloop, was still a massive shock. It didn't mean the game earned it any less, however, thanks to the story it tells throughout of a married couple that is on the verge of finding themselves, somehow, inside a storybook that they have to collaborate with each other in, in order to escape, get back to the real world, and their daughter again. Here's Holly Emery of Bonsai Collective from Season 5, the talk of it takes two as their favourite game. But before that, Holly has asked me to ask you to please consider providing a donation to Mermaids. For those who don't know or are outside of the UK, Mermaids is a gender identity charity in the UK that helps provide support for trans and non-binary queer folks in the UK. There will be links to their website on the post for this episode on all the podcast platforms as well as playdiaries.com but a donation would be greatly appreciated at this time of year. Anyway, here's Holly on It Takes Two. Hello folks, my name is Holly Emery, my pronouns are they them, and I'm a queer non-binary co-founder and production director of Bonsai Collective. My favourite game of 2021, it has to be It Takes Two, developed by Hazelight Studios and published by EA. Oh my goodness, what a game. Big spoiler klaxon alert though, like a beep 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 spoilers. If you have not played this game, you need to pause this recording right now. You need to pick up that controller, you need to click that mouse, you need to open that wallet and just do the thing that you need to do until the game is bought, okay? Now, you need to go play it. You there? You with me? Cool? No? Great. Great. Let's go. It Takes Two was one of the most confusingly beautiful games that I've ever played. Like, confusing because when I went in with the perception that it is a 3D platforming game for young children, um, I just... I was very, very wrong. Very, <laughs> very wrong. I got that from the aesthetic. It... yeah. It isn't... it's not for young children. The game is it's spread across loads of different environments and themes, tackling the separation of a child's parents, who seemingly get part of themselves transformed into dolls by a very, very questionable book of love. And after the child wishes for them to get back together using this book of love, the parents need to play together whilst continuous arguments are happening um, to escape this nightmarish hostage situation. Yeah, they're arguing because, well, they're separating. They do not want to be in the same space together and they're being forced into this situation and they're having to complete puzzles and just generally progress a narrative of therapy throughout the levels with this book that's accompanying them on the way. So, horrifyingly, you have to do some frankly awful stuff in order to help the parents escape too. You start in the garage after this, like, a book of Love spell has been completed and you, you are brought into this strange world with a very tiny character and a very large space. You discover a hoover that the parents have discarded in the, the garage a long time ago and you once committed to fixing it but now the hoover is seemingly alive and wants revenge for not being fixed for all these years. So it cues a delightful fight sequence where you have to use the hoover's own hands to suction out of the out the hoover's eyes to kill it. I had to take a break after that. 
I was shocked. I was flabbergasted. My innocence, like, it, I did not expect it. That's where the the feeling of this being a child game abruptly ended. It, it was beautiful. There is more as well. Whilst playing through, the parents, in their sorry state of desperation, they start to believe that their child, like, making their child cry in the same way that right at the start of the game the child cried and the book of love came to life they thought if they made the child cry again um it might fix this entire situation so you begin on your merry quest to pull off the limbs of your child's favorite toy and like you're chasing this toy throughout this like medieval uh, environment um trying to yeah trying to get time with this queen of this like child's like make-believe fantasy world um in the child's bedroom the child doesn't know that you're there and like in this fantasy world um but yeah you chase the toy down and whilst the toy is softly weeping at you you pull off one of its limbs you pull off one of its ears and then you throw it you discard it into the middle of the child's bedroom no remorse that like the the parents are watching with glee whilst the child starts to cry and it just it doesn't do anything the, the book of love clearly is disappointed very disappointed highlights just how problematic the thing that you've just done is it's outrageous <laughs> the, the, the parents it just doesn't it just doesn't connect to them what they're doing to their child um yeah there are frequent camera cinematics as well that flash back to the real world where the child is speaking to their comatose parents. Because the parents' bodies are just like still stuck in this house, um, the, the bodies are there, the consciousness is, is doing the puzzles. This child is going to interact to the parents while the, the parents are unconscious and just talking to them. They're like, I'm so sorry that I have been such a bad child for you i'm i may as well not exist anymore and it's like oh it's horrible <laughs> it's so dark and yeah the, the, the parents are just off pulling off the limbs off the off the favorite toy <laughs> yeah um good grief well that's the story um like for for the gameplay moments um some of my favorite parts were um, mini games like the RPG where you play as a, a wizard and a warrior. Um, the that, I thought that that could be a game within itself. Um, there's some really um, like dynamic uh, level design areas where you play as I think it's dinosaurs, trying to interact with various puzzle pieces pieces to like navigate through a level. And there was also a garden environment where you had to ride spiders and I just I really like the camera controls in that sequence actually it was really nice and finally some of the environments were so pretty so interactable I, the snow biome the medieval biome like the there were just so many NPCs those biomes in particular I think some some of the areas uh didn't have as much going on but those areas in particular a lot of the environment budget must have gone there but you could throw snowballs in the snow biome it's just really sweet all in all i would definitely recommend that you and a friend or you and a lover you or a parent just play this game it is creepy it is wonderful it is so well done it makes me question some heteronormative relationships but it is 
absolutely brilliant. Just well done to Hazelight Studios and EA for making such a horrifyingly good game. Hey there listeners, this is Sam Barlow. You may know me from such games as Her Story, Silent Hill Shadow of Memories, currently working on my most ambitious and straight up weird project yet, Immortality, is out in 2022, wishlisted on Steam, etc, etc. My favourite game of 2021 is Dungeon Encounters by Square Enix, or Squeenix as we call them. Announced out of nowhere and subsequently released a week or two later on Nintendo Switch, PC and PlayStation 4, Dungeon Encounters is an exploration RPG from Square Enix that goes back to the basics of the role-playing game genre. An otherwise nondescript game and basic looking on paper, Dungeon Encounters is actually a lot more on paper than what it appears to be. What especially helps is Dungeon Encounters development team is comprised of key veterans of the Final Fantasy franchise and directed by Final Fantasy VI co-director as well as Final Fantasy IX and Final Fantasy XII director Hiroyuki Ito. It harkens back to Ito's work with Final Fantasy XII and even much older games in the series. Here's season 3 finale guest and the creator of her story and telling lies as well as the upcoming immortality Sam Barlow on why Dungeon Encounters is his favourite game of the year. Dungeon Encounters is a extremely minimalist dungeon hack RPG. Um, so minimal. You're basically looking at a kind of graph paper grid that represents the level you're on. You move your character around. Enemies are represented by hexadecimal numbers. So you'll see, you know, 3A and be like, oh crap, it's a dragon and some flying gargoyles. Uh, which makes you think of uh, how they probably programmed this stuff back in the day, right? When they're making kind of 8-bit Final Fantasies, uh, you would have had a little hexadecimal code for each enemy combination. And so when you play this game, you know that at most there are 255 different combinations. Um, and part of the reason for this is that this game was made by uh, some of the original creators uh, of the Final Fantasy games. Uh, so the guy who invented the active time battle system is designing this game. And it's kind of fascinating to see, you know, possibly some of the most experienced and greatest creators in this genre coming to it in this way, essentially deconstructing and giving you this kind of pure deep dive into a genre that they helped create. 
I said to someone, it's kind of like, imagine if Steven Spielberg dropped a two-minute TikTok and it was the best movie of the year. Uh, it has that kind of level of excellence and just the depth of the design. And with all of the, the crap stripped away, no cutscenes, no story, I mean, pretty much the only story and narrative in this game comes from the, the quite interesting, actually, little character biographies that characters have. There's nothing else. Um, and so to see all of that stripped away, you're looking purely at the kind of fundamental mechanism uh, and kind of gameplay and alongside that, and this is a thing that I'm kind of obsessed with myself, when you strip all that away, you're leaving so much of it to the player's imagination. And it's, it's just amazing to see how just working within this kind of two-dimensional grid, how much the designers here can evoke different feelings, different types of environment, how they can construct kind of interesting puzzles just out of the coordinate system. Um, it really makes the battle system something which, you know, if I'm playing one of the more extravagant Final Fantasy games, at some point the battles become this annoyance between me and the next cutscene. Here, you can really, with this stripped-back minimalism, really enjoy the battle system. It's an incredibly interesting and deep take on uh, kind of the, the active time battle system. So it's just constantly a delight and it's constantly impressing you and surprising you with little tricks and things that they find uh, to kind of do and how they play within this minimalist setup. And, you know, as someone that kind of grew up playing games like Bard's Tale, Dragon Wars, you know, reading old gaming magazines and turning to the kind of the cheats page where uh, other users would have drawn and, and shared their graph paper maps. Like it definitely kind of touches on some of that nostalgia, but I think ultimately it completely stands on its own two feet. And, you know, it's not uh, minimalism for the sake of it. It's really plays to its strengths and it's you know probably one of the greatest dungeon hack rpgs i've ever played certainly uh the most fun i've had playing an rpg in years uh it's the only game i 100 percented this year like i just couldn't put it down on my switch until i had uncovered everything uh every little nook and cranny so absolutely unreservedly my game of the year for 2021 is dungeon encounters by squeenix senior designer at media molecule and my favorite game of 2021 is unpacking by Witchbeam. unpacking is by definition an item puzzle game where you're as the title describes unpacking your belongings in new settings in numerous stages of your life what unpacking actually is however is a lot more than that it has you unpacking your possessions yes but it has you unpacking moments of your life it has you unpacking past relationships it has you unpacking the feelings you have in such a massive way tied to the aforementioned and then some. It is a wonderfully melancholy game that'll have you delve into your feelings 
in ways you cannot possibly fathom. Unpacking is genuinely a brilliant game that is about to be heavily recommended in a massive way. Because in a moment, you'll hear from Season 2 guest, Splash Damage Writer and Narrative Designer Ed Stern, as well as Season 5 guest and Freelance Games Producer Kitty Crawford on it. But for now, here's Season 4 Finale guest, and the only other person to present my favourite game besides myself, Media Molecule Lead Designer Catherine Woolley to talk of Unpacking as her favourite game of the year. Unpacking's a small indie game. Um, I think I was browsing uh, the games in Game Pass, maybe, um, and kind of read the description of, I think it was like a Zen kind of puzzle game uh, where you're doing like familiar things of pulling possessions out of boxes um, and then kind of going into like a puzzle kind of block fitting style game. Uh, while also decorating house and I was like okay I don't know what this is but um, I'll download it and give it a go see what I think Um, and at first uh, I guess I didn't have like connected feelings to it in a way Uh, you know it felt like I was unpacking uh, someone's belongings I had no kind of um, attachment to them uh, myself uh, except for like uh, what taking out uh, trying to think of which which generation it started at I'm going to say uh, an original Game Boy um, and like art supplies and stuff um, and an old computer and um, I was like okay cool and then as as you kind of progress through the game there's multiple house moves um, there's eight in total I believe um, and then you you gradually learn more and more about this person and it was just a very nice way of telling a story through environmental storytelling uh through like the tiniest of things that really got to me like uh i think probably the one people have mentioned most uh online is the uh when you you can tell that the character the character the person has moved into an apartment um with a partner and this partner has a lot of stuff and you cannot move their stuff which is like a, a big thing um, in my eyes because, you know, if you live with someone, you should um, happily make changes uh, to live with them um, as opposed to force your own way onto them. Um, and uh, it, it leads to you not being able to put some very personal items anywhere, uh, including like a diploma. Um, and literally the only place to put it is in a cupboard Uh, But what felt really weird is I actually instinctively did that as well. Almost like trying, not like I was trying to hide it, but just, I was just like, yeah, that that will kind of go in there. But I think potentially my eyes noticed um, there was no wall space uh, to be able to put it anywhere. Um, But then what I felt was quite nice in the next next house move uh, where you've got your photos which you've been putting up on a notice board all this time uh, or on the fridge Um, there's a photo with that partner who is now an ex-partner and I went to put it I guess on the notice board and I think it was like no I was like okay they were the partner you've split up with them you don't like them anymore Um, and yeah I don't know For, for me it was like it was just a nice calm experience and I got to like 
I guess, moan at times of like, oh, you know, you should have bigger bathroom cabinets for these things, or oh, the two of you have this item, so maybe actually you don't need yours anymore. So I would have liked the ability maybe to get rid of things, but um, I mean, that wasn't the point of it, of course. Um, but yeah, it had like a level of intimacy to it um, that really felt like you were learning about this person, about their life. You could tell what meant something to them because they brought it through every change in their life and they kept it and then they, you know, you wanted to then show it to others and and carry it on within your life. So, I don't know, it was just a very nice experience and I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, it's it's been a good year for games, uh, but I think unpacking is my little gem. Uh, that shines through all of the others. I'm Ed Stern, I'm a narrative designer at Splash Damage, and my favourite game of 2021 is Unpacking. Unpacking was made by Witchbeam Games. It was released in... Oh my God, was it only released in November? Ah, time has gone so weird. Um, it's several different kinds of great, um, but particularly from a narrative design and storytelling point of view, I think it, it, it's really interesting. Pretty much all of narr narrative design and game writing involves taking fundamentally inanimate objects not, not, or not even objects, just shapes and trying to make them uh, mean things to the player. So whether whether that's a, like you know, a full-on performance-captured cinematic sequence or environmental narrative or character design or the dreaded kind of stereotype of graffiti scrawled on the walls um, you are trying to make smart choices of what shapes you have next to or not next to other shapes so that players feel things, maybe even the things you want them to feel. Um, and unpacking sort of takes that, that one aspect to the extreme because it's so simple, or at least it looks so simple because it's cute and it's perky and it's pixel art and it's, it seems like it's just a simple puzzle game. It's, it's, it's Tetris without any time pressure with pixel art domestic possessions. You see you see a 2D environment, it's your new apartment, your flat, so you know, you've just moved in, now you have to unpack those cardboard boxes and place your possessions in your new place. There's no time pressure, there's no fail states, you, you can't lose, you just have you know you just haven't completed the level yet. But it's so much more than that. Um, it's deeply human. It's a biography. It's a history of a life in a few dozen objects. Uh, there's no violence in it. You don't even ever see any actual human characters in it. There's just your unseen hand and your possessions. But it can feel really um, forensic and foreboding at times, like you're intruding on, the, on this kind of emotional archaeological dig site. Um, and because you're not being distracted by character models or animations, you, you get to work out the story yourself it's like the old joke about you know, people preferring radio because the pictures are better compared to tv but you're wondering well, who is this person who owns this stuff what happened here who are they living with and why and and where what, what happens next and have their possessions changed in that time i, I don't want to spoil it. It, it, it it's so it's so beautifully not just crafted but authored you keep having precisely the reaction 
that the developers planned, even though it's left completely up to you what you do and in which order. Um, there are some moments that make me laugh out loud. There is a not even a joke. I don't even know how to describe it with a, with a toilet roll. It was just like, oh, you, you. I was just genuinely envious at that point. Um, really wittily and elegantly conceived. I think elegance is a very tough thing to do in games. You just go, oh, perfect. That's just a beautiful, a beautiful touch. There's some moments that left me pretty much crying. Um, there were moments of, of like bafflement and recog- horrible recognition. I'm pretty sure I have been at least two of the characters in it, and I'm pretty sure that's not a good thing. Um, I want to play it through with my daughter when she is old enough. She's just a toddler now. Uh, anybody who wants to date her in decades to come will have to play through it with me first. I think I'm joking. I'm not absolutely sure about that. Um, but seriously, I, I, I really wish I had had unpacking to play before I moved out from my parents' house, before I started sharing flats or moved in with people or moved out from people. It would have made me a more complete, complete human being. Um, oh, God, and the use of audio. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Every single object has its own Foley audio, so when you place it on any surface, it makes the right sound. But that goes for every single object and every single surface in every room. Um, it's incredible, and that shouldn't work. You shouldn't be able to have, you know, the audio at kind of 4K ultra-high definition while the graphics are being all cute and blocky and pixel art. But somehow it works perfectly. It's, it's, it's a really interesting kind of mismatch of resolution. Um, and like a lot of very interesting games, it spawns some really interesting and perceptive reactions online. And, and it, it turns out there's a whole debate about what does or does not constitute a wholesome game. And I'm not remotely qualified to make calls on that term or that taxonomy. Um, one definition I've seen is the games are low stakes, low stress, low violence, uplifting themes, thoughtful representation of marginalised groups. And it's kind of, well, yes, but no, because the stakes turn out to be empathetically pretty high. There's no actual overt violence, but, oh man, some of the relationships you can kind of reverse engineer are not ideal. I don't know, there's something about the way it was marketed that suggested it wasn't just not frantic in pace, but that it was relaxing. And it really was not relaxing to play. I found it really quite stressful at times but in a really compelling way I, I, I'd recommend it to absolutely anyone whether they think that they're a gamer or not because it's about relationships and not everyone has had great relationships and there's a lot I don't want to spoil it but there's a lot about the way in which you diminish yourself kind of psychologically and emotionally but also just in terms of logistics to fit into a relationship that's not good for you the emotions are high def and the art is deliberately really blocky. And I think that's a really uh, interesting way of making games and just an absolute creative and production triumph. Unpacking. There's a lot to unpack. It's really great. Play it.
Kitty Crawford. I'm a freelance indie producer and I'm here to talk about my favorite game of 2021. This is a really tough one for me this year, actually. There's been quite a number of really interesting indie games that have been released in the last, uh, in the last year um, and some pretty decent AAA ones as well. But for me, the standout this year has been the game Unpacking. I first came across it during uh, Ludo NarrowCon on Steam and immediately fell in love with the demo that I got to play uh, and then just continually shouted about it on Twitter <laughs> hoping that they would release it soon and they did. Um, I have never played a game that has approached such a unique like that's had such a unique approach to narrative storytelling and environmental storytelling uh before um i originally really liked the game because i thought oh you know this combines everything that i love about you know the sims and uh designing environments and uh i love games like house flipper and stuff like that so I thought, yeah, this will be uh, this will be the type of game that I'll love. And as I played the game, I realized this isn't just some kind of decorating game. This is actually telling the story of someone's life through the environments and through the locations that they live in and the items that they own and even right down to the placement of said items uh, without giving any spoilers away. Anyone who's played the game will know what I mean when I say there's one particular level where you're unpacking into an apartment and there's a key item that doesn't seem to fit anywhere as you're unpacking. Um, and, you know, it is, you're trying to stuff your items in and around somebody else's life. But there's this heartbreaking moment when this particular item when you realize there's only one place it can go and when you place it like I, I personally uh when I placed the item where it could the only place it could go I felt so heartbroken I felt so sad for this character that that this was where they were at at the stage of their life and having such an em emotional reaction to something completely driven by me uh to a certain extent um was just really fascinating as a narrative mechanic to me um that for me it, it's a standout uh in terms of that kind of uh creativity and innovation in narrative storytelling um it's also an absolutely beautiful game there's so much love into it uh i saw a thing on twitter that there's like 1,400 signs in the game. Uh, it, for it being such a short game and for such a straightforward mechanic, there has been a lot of love and uh, care put into the game. And that's why it's my game of the year.
After years and years of clamouring for it, Psychonauts 2 was finally released this year for Xbox Series X and S, Xbox One, PC, PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4. In what is Double Fine's final multi-platform release after its acquisition by Microsoft in 2019, Psychonauts 2 is a fantastic platformer that not only improves on the first game's shortcomings, but also tackles mental health in a meaningful but healthy way that pokes fun at it without punching down on it. In that regard, Psychonauts 2 is a triumph for Double Fine, showing promise for the studio as a Microsoft first party developer and what it does in the future. From Season 5 of My Favourite Game, here's Alex Canaris Sotiru of rookie developer Polygon Treehouse to talk of Psychonauts 2 as his favourite of the year. Hi, this is Alex here from Polygon Treehouse, creators of Rookie. My favourite game of the year 2021 is Psychonauts 2. And I think for me it was pretty easy choice, although there was plenty of other games that I really enjoyed from the year. So Psychonauts, 15 years ago, uh, it was an amazing game, full of imagination. And finally, it's getting the sequel. And what a sequel it is. Amazing. Central concept is still as fun and as original as ever. So you're diving into people's heads, venturing through their subconsciousness, trying to unravel their, their secrets and get to the bottom of a mystery. I think humour in games is really hard to get right and the reason that Psychonauts 2 manages to be a great example of a humorous game is it's not really surface level jokes or limited surface level jokes. The humours were woven throughout the game design from its character design, you're fighting sensors, panic attacks and bad ideas in monstrous form. So yeah right the way through the game just you know everything about it is humorous. Humour is in its bones and as a 3D artist, I'm a massive fan of games with their art style manages to push away from the, the rigid straight lines that 3D art, art can have. And Psychonauts 2 is definitely an amazing example of where a, a game, a 3D game can appear delightfully wonky and off kilter and, and full of charm and odd angles. It definitely has that kind of nightmare before Christmas wonk about it, which is is really great and it makes it just a really unique world to step into and just the sheer amount of imagination and creativity that, that's gone into the game from you know, the some of the, the level set pieces that you play are really memorable so you have this sergeant peppers level where you have to get a band back together it's all quite trippy you have uh, a really weird like food tv show you're taking part of where you have to get ingredients that have smiling grinning faces and put them in blenders and chop them up and and, and make meals and that's uh it's just really fun kind of odd and sinister experience and well i think my favorite location in the game there's a wilderness camp where the waterfall is flowing backwards so you'll see logs flowing upwards defying gravity and it just there's so many lovely touches within the game that it really is uh you know, just a a delight to play and the characters they're they're not cookie cutter characters each one is unique and there's been it feels bespoke that love has been put been poured into their creation and for me that really span, stands out and it's just really nice to see a game that you know can explore uh mental health with kindness and tell a tell a great story and for me one of the other reasons why i really enjoyed psychonauts 
too, is that it didn't outstay its welcome. It basically came with all the good stuff, slapped it down, went enjoy, have fun, and then when you were done, you were done. I think it was maybe it was about a 15-hour-long game. And so for me, you now that's the kind of playtime that I like these days. So it was really cool that I got to dive in to an amazing world, have a really great experience, and be delighted from start to finish, and leave with happy memories. So yeah, Psychonauts 2 was my favourite game of the year for 2021. Hello, my name is Andrew Smith. I'm the CEO, founder and creative director at Spilt Milk Studios. We're an independent game developer based in London in the UK. And my favourite game of 2021, I have a short list here. I'm looking at it. I'm agonising. But ultimately, I've got a one, one choice and it's Inscription. Inscription is a game that basically came out of nowhere. On the surface of it, it is essentially a card game. But add that aspect into your creepy story and the gameplay mechanics over the course of it and you have not so much one of the best card games of the year as you do one of the best games of the year full stop. Here's Spilt Milk Studios' Andrew Smith of Season 2 to talk of Inscription as his favourite game of the year. Um, where to begin? I mean, it's a... Uh, it's, uh roguelike deck builder which makes it sound you know like it's hopping on a bandwagon but it's it's also so much more than that it's uh a mix of genres and i'll try not to spoil too much but there's room escape in there there's a lot of narrative in there there's a mystery at its core that is you know well written and, and entertaining to unravel and more than all of that it's one of the most atmospheric games i've played in a very long time as a developer myself, it's always going to be interesting to me when a, a, another developer uses their skills and knowledge and know-how in a smart way. And Inscription, I think, does that more than any game I've ever played. Um, it combines off-the-shelf assets and bits and pieces from all kinds of collaborators and the designer and creator of it has basically arranged and orchestrated and edited and directed all of it into this very singular vision which is just tremendously successful. I played it around Halloween uh, because it is quite a spooky game at least initially um, and it is just masterful basically. It's one of those games where not only am I wishing I had thought to do it, uh, I'm slightly in awe of how they've done it and that means a lot to me as a, as a creator. I think that it is also a very well designed game. There is actually more than one game in it and, the, and all of the games are well designed uh, which is bonkers to me. Um, and the aesthetics, the audio design, the visual design, the sort of game feel, the every single little element of it is just fine-tuned and honed to basically to perfection um there are some balancing issues there's some tutorialization kind of issues you know some of the mechanics are a little opaque initially but discovery is part of the game so i'm not going to be too critical of that kind of thing um but ultimately 
it's unlike anything I've played other than his previous works, uh, the, this particular developer. And I just hope that more people experience it. I know it's been in a few top 10 lists and that sort of thing, and it's well-deserved. But there you go, Inscription is just a modern masterpiece, I would say. Absolutely brilliant. Resident Evil Village marked the end of the story that began in Resident Evil 7 featuring Ethan Winters as it headed towards an Eastern European setting. Village also has arguably more of an action focus than the American South horror centric approach of Resident Evil 7 as you'll hear season 3 guest and 10 second ninja director Dan Pierce say in a second. But it is still also very much quintessential Resident Evil in every sense of it. As someone who really likes Resident Evil Village, as someone who prefers more of the action horror stuff in games than the out and out horror, or what I've played of it anyway, it is straight up fantastic, and is definitely worthy of its spot as one of the best games of the year. Here's Dan on his take of Resident Evil Village, and why it's his favourite game of the year. My name is Dan Pierce. I'm game director at Full Second Interactive, and my favorite game of 2021 is Resident Evil Village. Resident Evil is a series I have a lot of secondhand experience with as a result of watching too many video essays and always having friends with a love of the series. For most of my life, I was in a position of being intimately familiar with the series' lore, much parody line deliveries, in addition to every iconic puzzle or Resident Evil moment. Despite this, I always struggled to make more than a dent in any of them. I understood these games and why they were smart, but I couldn't hook in or get invested. 2017's Resident Evil 7 changed all that. Seven refined all the greatest design trends of the series and presented them in a new context that made them feel fresh, involving, and immersive. The Vicar Ranch was so full of texture and tone, every surface feeling dirty and unsafe, like running a finger along a damp, splintered piece of wood. This confidence in its direction resulted in being my favourite game of that year. Above all else, it was a focused experience, choosing one theme, exploring it thoroughly, and leaving everything on the field. Resident Evil Village is not that game. It tries a lot of different things at once, it wades back into the territory of over-the-top Resident Evil nonsense, it is a more directly self-referential game overall. Taken as a whole, Village is not as refined or consistent as 7 was, but nonetheless it is still my game of the year. See, while Village might not be as focused, I think the peaks it hits are a lot higher than anything at 7. Much has been said of the game's theme park of horror design philosophy, treating each location splitting off from Village's central hub area like an attraction, each focusing on a different vibe and set of mechanics. This structure allows Village to reach deep into its goodie bag of ideas and assemble a charcuterie board of diverse, high-concept scenarios. It feels a bit like only playing the prime cuts of four or five different entire games, with Lady Dimitrescu's castle and House Beneviento being obvious highlights. The game builds to a bombastic finale that is absolutely buck-wild, almost like Resident Evil 6 crashed through the wall and brought all the series camp with it. It is a jarring shift that came just when I was starting to feel like Ethan Winter's brand of Resident Evil might be starting to outstay its welcome. This shot in the arm carries the game through to a finale that still somehow manages to feel sentimental and earned, despite everything. It's not a particularly long game for a big-budget AAA release. I completed it comfortably over the course of a few weeknights, managed to fit it in between making dinner and tidying the house and all the other grown up things that mean I don't play games with the same unbroken attention span I had as a teenager. Despite this, I still found the scenarios and characters of Resident Evil Village easy to immerse myself in. 
I felt like my time was being respected, and outside of a handful of slightly too long exploration sections, I rarely felt like the game was showing me anything less than the best it had to offer. I often relax into big budget games, sinking into them over the course of a few weeks. Wide open spaces, comfortable progression pacing, markers I can tick off. It's an easy thing to get hooked on, but something I often regret doing. It's common for me, after 15 to 20 hours in one of these games, to pull my head up, decide to take a break, and suddenly realise that I have almost no memory of anything I just spent that time doing. Resident Evil 7 wasn't that to me. I remember a handful of moments very vividly, but what stuck with me most was the tone. The texture of that location and how it felt wandering its winding tunnels and corridors. It is a memory with a single, specific flavour, one that I could only experience by playing 7 again. Resident Evil Village isn't that curated. It has flavours, plural. My playthrough clocked in around 8 or 9 hours, but I can recollect almost every major beat that happened in that time. Despite their similar runtimes, Village just feels like so much more game, taking big swing after big swing and committing with utter confidence in itself. Resident Evil Village may not be the most refined game, or even as strong as its predecessor, but I can't think of another game this year that I remember quite as fondly. Hello, Play Diaries. I'm Fernando Rizzo. I'm the boss at universally beloved indie games publisher Modern Wolf. Uh, I want to tell you about my favorite game of 2021. That's got to be Against the Storm. Against the Storm is currently in early access on the Epic Game Store, but there does seem to be some promise around it as a time-building strategy sim. It sees you play as a close aide of a queen that is sent out to help build new cities and towns through a continuous hard weather and terrible storms that aim to impede you every step of the way. Ahead of its full release next year, here's Modern World CEO Fernando Rizzo from Season 5 to talk of it, despite being in early access, as his favourite game of 2021. And apologies for any chaos you hear in the background from Fernando. It is very frantic. Maybe you haven't heard of Against the Storm. That's because it's an Epic Games exclusive. Um, so maybe it hasn't had the visibility of some of the other great indie games this year. But boy, it is a great indie game. Uh, it's early access, or whatever the equivalent term of art is on Epic. And, um, you know, I guess I, I choose it for, for my game of the year. Maybe not for the game it is now, though, though to be sure, the game it is now is excellent. But certainly for the game, I think it will become. I mean, the, the, the bones of what's there are amazing. Against the Storm is uh, a city builder, uh, but it's also a roguelite. And um, I think one, one of the things that uh, I tend to do personally, when I play city builders at least, is I, I put you know an hour, two hours into a city, uh, and as soon as the city starts to get kind of complex... Um, I lose interest, and I go start another city. Um, and, and Against the Storm seems perfectly calibrated uh, for that sort of player. Uh, it is a game about the first 30 minutes of building a new city, which is all you can do, because, you know, you... you uh, well, let me, let me tell you about the world. So it's a post-apocalyptic world. 
um, in a world where, where, where sentient beavers and lizards coexist with humans. It's been a great year for sentient beavers between this and um, Timberborn. But uh, yeah, so y y y there's one city left in the world because there's been a storm that's uh, uh, taking uh, sort of control of the world. And uh, the last city, uh, when the storm abates, sends out uh, uh, parties to build outposts and collect resources uh, until the storm comes back. So you are one of those people that the queen sends out into the wilderness to build outposts in between flare-ups of the storm. And so that's, that's how the game works, right? You go out, you've got certain objectives from the queen, you know, deliver this resource or that resource. And so, you know, you build little supply chains, uh, a la Factorio Light, and, uh, you know, it, it's a city builder with some really uh, achievable short-term objectives and a lot of variety, right? So you go out there, the different biomes are different, you find different mysteries when, when you uh, cut down enough trees to reach one of the glades, the, the clearings in the forest that all hide certain mysteries. So it's a great game. It's just full of variety. Um, it needs more variety. Uh, it needs probably a bit more challenge or at least a better calibrated challenge uh, than it has right now. But um, I can speak to its flaws because I've spent literally hours with it. And in a year where I've been very busy, I think that says quite a lot. It's a hell of a game. Um, I think it will be just a, a, an unstoppable juggernaut of, of fun when it's done, uh, whenever that is. So, you know, hats off to, to Aramite, the studio that made it. Uh, I need to send them an email, actually, just to tell them how much I love the game. But it's a great game. Uh, highly recommend it to absolutely everybody who likes city builders or, or strategy games in general. Um, Against the Storm, just wonderful. Uh, good now, soon to be great. Definitely the most interesting game. Uh, I've played in 2021, that's for sure. Before we wrap up this special, here's a few honourable mentions from the people you've heard from in this episode. We'll run this, mostly, in running order from folks who have provided honourable mentions. First, here's Tom Bramwell. Deathloop, obviously, is very interesting and worth playing. I probably love the middle of that game more than the beginning or the end, that period where you're just kind of jumping into a level for 30 minutes to learn something new and find goodies and then ducking out again. If you enjoy that kind of thing, I also really enjoyed um, Chernobylite, which has a similar rhythm. Both games remind me of Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker in terms of play patterns, which is a very good thing. Here's Eurogamer's Chris Donlan. Uh, yeah, Door for Romantic is amazing. Have you played that? I have not. Oh my god, it's really great. It's a sort of tile-matching game where you're trying to... It's not tile-matching at all, what am I talking about? You're placing tiles it's and you're building free, a landscape. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. It's more like you're chasing hexes, you're, you're placing hexes and you're trying to build a landscape. And the landscape is evolving based on the tiles you have and the rules of how you put them together. It's really wonderful. It's on PC, but I hope it comes to Switch. It's just a fantastic, fantastic game. Um, Mini Motorways, which has been on 
uh, iOS for a while, but which came out on PC this year. Have you played that? I've not. Like, to be fair, a lot of my stuff has been primarily AAA, with, it, with the exception yeah, you are... of, the, of the Kid Amnesia exhibition. Oh, what do you think of that? I have to play it. I have not played it, but I know you're a big Radiohead fan. What do you make of it? <laughs> Believe it or not, it's my favorite game of the year. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> Next, Sunderlust Games, Nels Anderson. Some honorable mentions for 2021 would be Deathloop for its incredible marriage of theme and mechanics, for some truly amazing characters and performances, and for creating a structure where I can finally play an arcade game without being a quick save, quick load, lunatic. <laughs> Inscription for being absolutely dripping with atmosphere, but also serving up a, a totally rock-solid deck-building card game, <laughs> and Chicory for its indefatigable charm, but also its willingness to look at some real challenging stuff around self-worth and how we value ourselves through the things we create in the world. Now, it is a game that was made by some very good friends of mine here in Vancouver, and I couldn't be happier for what they accomplished. But I'd still be saying every word of this, even if Chicory had been made by total strangers. It's it's great. Here's Warner Brothers Dan Cito. My picks for honorable mentions of my favorite game of 2021 is a game that I'm going to be honest that I did not see that I you know I had no idea that I would play as much as I did. Um, and that game is Pokemon Unite. I am not a MOBA player. I've never really had an interest in the genre. I've tried to get into it, but you know, they're just, they're just not for me. And pre-release, to be honest, I didn't really care for Pokemon Unite and I couldn't really tell you why I started playing in the first place. Maybe it was because there was just some hype when it came out and I fed into that and it's free to play. So I was like, hey, why not? But ever since it came out, I have literally played it every single day. I've done all my dailies. I've, you know, I've gone through all three battle passes. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I play it a ton. Um, and I don't really know why. Um, it's fun. I can tell you that. I mean, I really, I mean, I can tell you why. It's because I enjoy it. I mean, that's pretty much given. Maybe it's because of the simplified rule set that it's about scoring, you know, and it's, each match is at most 10 minutes long. So it's very quick to pick up and play or easy I should say to pick up and play um, but yeah I've I've been having a ton of fun with it and I've been playing it every day and I probably will continue to um, yeah so that's my honorable mention for my favorite game of 2021 Pokemon Unite here's a few more shots from Media Molecules Cat Lily um, so I have a few honorable mentions uh, for 2021 um, however some of them are older than 2021 uh but i know um so for example i really enjoyed super liminal uh which got released on xbox this year i believe um i've been enjoying playing minecraft still um especially with the caves and cliffs update quite recently um i have loved playing Torum so far uh last stop is really cool um i haven't finished it yet uh but i'm enjoying uh what is it variable states newest game and then i've got um this list is just really long. Uh, I have Life is Strange and I need uh, Life is Strange True Colors and I need to play it. 
uh, and I'm going to be playing it at Christmas. Uh, I'm also looking forward to playing Deathloop as well, which hopefully I can play at Christmas time. Um, it feels bad to not mention games, so like I have been enjoying Psychonauts 2, uh, Ratchet and Clank, Rift Apart. Uh, I've been enjoying Medium as well. Um, that was cool when that uh, eventually came out. Um, Genesis Noir. Uh, and maquette as well um so there's been lots of nice indie releases this year and i've really enjoyed that and i've enjoyed spending time on the smaller games next kitty crawford uh some honorable mentions i've been playing in the description literally this week um it's a fantastic game i'm not finished which is maybe part of the why reason why that it hasn't it isn't my game of the year um but Maybe if I finish it, I'd feel differently. I don't know, but it's it feels like a very close runner-up. It's exactly the kind of game I thought I was getting, but it's still surprising me at every turn. Uh, I also played The Forgotten City very recently. What I find interesting about The Forgotten City is that to me, it looks like a really old style game. Like It looks more like an Oblivion game uh, or something like that. But the way that game plays out is absolutely fantastic i thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing i think i played it in one sitting as well um it's a puzzle game as well but it involves a lot of investigative like detective work and it has multiple different endings and i, I thoroughly enjoyed it and then valheim uh, i think i have to mention because that's a game that i spent a lot of time with friends uh over the last year uh and i think that um any game that enables me to spend time with my friends during the days that we've lived through in the last couple of years is a great game in my books. And that's my game of the year. Thank you. Next up, Alex Canera Sotiru from Polygon Treehouse. For honorable mentions, clear second place for me is Metroid Dread. Again, it's quite a, a, a lean game. It felt really packed full of good stuff. Uh, First, I didn't get on with the robot stalking sections, but really grew to, to love them, and they became my favorite aspects of the game by the end. They always were like a puzzle uh, that you had to, to work out how to solve, which I thought was really, uh, really smart. And the way they were paced out through the game, I think, was great. There were some awesome set-piece uh, boss fights, and yeah, Metroid is probably my favorite of the Nintendo uh, like big franchises, and it was really great to see that game get some, some love. Um, yeah, and I think my enjoyment of Metroid Dread was increased by the fact that I was playing simultaneously with my friend, good friend Binster, who lives down under. So we don't get to see each other that often, and we were basically playing the game and like texting each other like where we got up to and kind of racing towards the end. So that really added uh, to my experience of, of the game. So it was really great. Chicory was another great game. The, the core mechanic of adding color back into the world was just really well executed and super joyful. Uh, had a great cast of characters, which were named after foodstuffs, which is kind of fun. Um, but, you know, for quite a cutesy-looking game, it wasn't afraid to go to some, some dark places. And it had the best help system of any game I've ever played. It was really fun, and I never felt like I hit a, a brick wall with that game. I could always work out where to go next. Um, and finally, Death's Door, which I'm playing at the moment. I'm a big fan of Dark Souls and Bloodborne and those kind of grim games and... Death Door kind of has some of that, that tightness and mechanics which feels like a, a kind of more welcoming place and again the setting is kind of odd so got lots of surprises in there, things you aren't really expecting, some really fun fun characters and I think 
the ability for a game to surprise and delight me, whatever the genre, is something that I, uh, yeah, I really enjoy. So that's it. That's my picks. Here's Andrew Smith from Spiltmog Studios. I do have some honourable mentions. I mentioned the shortlist. Death's Door is a brilliant slice of top-down action and story. Age of Empires 4 is just one of the most luxurious and sort of expensively made strategy games I've ever had the pleasure of playing. Power Wash Simulator was a complete bolt from the blue and just so zen. Fights in Tight Spaces, got to give that a shout out. It's been in early access for a while, but uh, it's it's a really smart deck building and baddie fighting game. And then Tick Tack Together, which I don't think many people have heard of, but it's a multiplayer recursive game of turn-based tic-tac-toe. Um, I'll say no more than that other, to, other than to say you should play it. It's very cheap. You can play it on your phone and it will absolutely smash at Christmas parties. And here is Monorail CEO Fernando Rizzo. Honorable mentions, I have to say um, Slipways. Uh, another incredible time sink, beautiful game, uh, wonderfully calibrated thing, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, uh, uh, I think there's definitely a lot to be said about the most recent Unity of Command DLCs, Unity Command 2 DLCs, uh, really superb, great stuff from, from 2x2 games as always. Um, between those and Slipways and Against the Storm, that was a lot of my time this year for sure. Um, won't talk about any of my own games, uh, obviously, uh, Modern Wolf, uh, wouldn't be fair, but we, we, we've, we've released a couple of, uh, I think, really standout titles this year worth checking out. But yeah, so that's it. Um, thanks as always, Play Diaries. Uh, catch you next time. Have a great new year. And to give a few extra shoutouts, here's three final honourable mentions from someone else. Me! I had a lot of doubts going into the Artfulscape. Frankly, I didn't feel a whole lot of excitement for it, which was odd considering this was being published by Annapurna Interactive, and anything with the Annapurna name on it, as I alluded to earlier, is very much an automatic must play in my book. Yet, a literal out of this world mix of art, music and story saw it surprised me in a massive way to be in my own top 3 games of the year. The Artful Escape is absolutely a must-play game if you're playing catch-up on games that have come out in 2021. What I'm about to say on Halo Infinite doesn't apply as a mix of both campaign and multiplayer. I've admittedly only played a tiny bit of the campaign, and it's good so far in what 
finally feels like 343 Industries has nailed the campaign portion of these games following Halo 4 and the mess that was Halo 5 Guardians. But what I'm saying here of Halo Infinite is, for the most part, on multiplayer. And 343 Industries has provided the best Halo multiplayer since Halo 3. This isn't to say there isn't issues, especially on stuff such as with progression, which admittedly 343 is trying to sort out. But 343 has finally made a Halo game that is on par with some of the best in the series past from Bungie. Finally, Mass Effect Legendary Edition is, quite frankly, the best collective package of games in one place since the Orange Box all the way back in 2007. Can you believe 2022 is actually going to be the 15th anniversary of the Orange Box? Good God, kill me now, please. The Shepard Trilogy finally got its full remastering, but in the case of Mass Effect 1, the incredible work done with it is more in line of what to expect with a remake than a remaster. With all three games and main story DLC included, with Mass Effect Legendary Edition you have the best way to play the best trilogy in gaming, the faults in Mass Effect 3's ending with standing on modern hardware. Play it. And then stick Kelsey Hansen's episode on Mass Effect 2 from Season 5 in the background while you're playing the collection. Or maybe the season premiere of Season 6 instead when that comes out. Was that a hand? Nearly ten years ago. Microsoft introduced a spin-off to the Forza Motorsport series that was dramatically different from the sim racing side of the franchise and focused more on some of the hottest cars at the time set in the confines of a music festival and located in one particular place at that time within an open world with an aim for a broader and wider audience under an arcade racing guise the company was missing with Project Gotham Racing no longer being a running concern. In the time since its first game, developer Playground Games has put out four more titles within that series. And for a series that is celebrating a decade in 2022, you'd think that fatigue would kick in at some point. Yet, game after game, different location after different location, and brilliant soundtrack after brilliant soundtrack, Playground has put out banger after banger after banger after banger after banger with each game. No wonder Microsoft wanted it as a first party studio a few years ago. I'll be frankly honest here, Kid Amnesia Exhibition may be my favourite game of the year, yes. But as it says at the start of it, it's not a game, it's an exhibition. So if you're talking about a game in a traditional sense, our final game of my favourite game of 2021 is actually my favourite of the year. But I said my piece earlier, and I stand by it. However, there is someone who is willing to talk of it as his favourite game of the year. That game, in case it hasn't been made clear yet, is of course, the brilliant 
Forza Horizon 5. From the Colorado Rockies to the Mediterranean to Australia to the UK and now Mexico, Forza Horizon 5 feels like the culmination of near 10 years of work from Playground Games to realise its vision of incredible arcade racing games. Forza Horizon may have started as a spin-off sub-brand to the main series of Forza Motorsports Flight vs Sim Racing, but at this point an argument can be made that Forza Horizon has surpassed Forza Motorsport in terms of franchise standing, and honestly, it would be massively deserved. Since 2012, every Forza Horizon game released has been fan-fucking-tastic, with very little to no franchise fatigue and exhaustion. That said, we're still waiting on Japan at this point, Playground. That's for Forza Horizon 6, right? Right? LET US LIVE ON OUR TOKYO DRESS DREAM! Anyway, to wrap up my favourite game of 2021, here's Roundabout and 100 foot robot golf developer No Goblin and co-founder Dan Teasdale from Season 4 did not only talk about Forza Horizon 5 as his favourite game of the year, but why it's a tie with Forza Horizon 4's LEGO Champions expansion. Hi, I'm Dan from No Goblin and my favourite game for 2021 is a tie between the Forza Horizon 4 LEGO DLC and Forza Horizon 5. However, I probably have different reasons than everyone else who picked Forza 5. So I'm one of those people who has been obsessed with uh, Forza Horizon as a series for a while now. I was one of those people who hooked up the uh, second screen support in Colorado in the first Forza Horizon to show my map. Um, I kind of, I'm one of those people that plays it not for racing cars, but for uh, collection and progression. So things like the barn finds, collecting roads, completing areas. Uh, that's what I live for in that game. Now the wrapper around a lot of this hasn't been good, especially at the start. A lot of it feels like your dad trying to uh, say the word drip in a sentence and not come off like you want to curl up into a ball and die. But the game around all of this has been fantastic. That's kind of why I've stuck with it for a decade. Having said that, there's been a gameplay trend in it that fights against why I play. Uh, the short explanation is that the progression model through Horizon for the last mainline series has been moving more towards this idea of play your way. You can choose any car you want to race, you can choose any tuning, you can edit the race if you don't like how it is, which you know, it sounds like a good like bullet point on the tin, but as someone who's playing these games to collect and progress and have a framework around that, it makes things very bland to experience uh, if everything ends up the same. You know, I don't need to buy and tune up different cars for different races if I can just bring any car with me. Uh, and you know, I don't have to worry about buying upgrades if I can just press a button and auto-tune my car to be the best car right out of the gate. Uh, if I have 400 events on the map, I kind of care about none of them. So because of that, I kind of pushed the trajectory of the Horizon series after 4 uh, kind of in the same place as like Far Cry is in, where you know it's fun. You know, I'll play around in it for a couple of hours, but it's, you know, the the peak for me is it's no longer a game designed for me, and so I, I kind of pushed it out of my head, um, and you know, shelved shelved it a little pretty early into Forza Four. 
So cut ahead to 2021. Uh, I have a two-year-old now, and uh, as a fun side tangent, let me tell you, the state of kids' games right now is beyond dire. Uh, mobile is all subscriptions. Very Hungry Caterpillar is a $5 subscription if you want to go play that. And there's like almost nothing on console to play. You know, especially for a two-year-old as well. Like, he's not at that Roblox Minecraft age yet. Um, so, keeping that in mind, my son also loves cars because he's a toddler. Uh, his first real repeatable word was car. Uh, at the moment, he yells Jeep any time we see, like, a Rubicon or a Wrangler on the road. And so, my thought was, hey, you know, why not fire up the, the LEGO Forza DLC? Let's see if that clicks. And, I mean, of course it clicks. He's, he's, it's LEGO, it's cars, he's a two-year-old. But it clicks for me too, uh, because unbeknownst to anyone at the time when that was released, the progression and collection system in uh, the Forza 4 LEGO DLC is the proof of concept for what would eventually become uh, Forza Horizon 5's progression. There's a lot of you know, use X, X type of car for Y challenges, layers of collection, theme quests guiding the story, uh, and most importantly there's this massive grid of things that I can go through and explore and check off and they're like, grouped in fun ways and they have nice theming to them and they're encouraging me to explore uh, the collection landscape of uh, Forza Lego. And at least for me it seemed like a great way to balance that sort of play your way modern Forza mentality with that classic Gran Turismo ideal of building up a suite of cars and upgrading them to fit special cases. And I'm really glad it succeeded with Lego because it means it's now the basis of a mainline Forza Horizon game. There's the whole grid but taken to the next level it's broken up into different areas the whole theming and story stuff is taken to the next level of having these uh you know multiple chooser adventure style pods that you can take depending on your play style um the big thing for me though is focusing on that and elevating up to that next level has meant that the things that i love doing in colorado like barn finds and area cleanup and driving on roads that's kind of like the weakest part of the game now and all of the weakest parts of Colorado, which is weirdly enough the racing, now kind of feels uh, almost vestigial. It makes me really, really excited to see the next iteration of mainline Forza Horizon to see how that stuff will get the same treatment as progression has over the last uh, cycle or two.
When I tell you Season 6 of My Favorite Game is close, I mean it's really close. Like, stupidly close. Want an example? Season 6 of My Favorite Game is finished. It's done. It's completed. Finished. Donezo. Bye, Felicia. Every episode for Season 6 has been recorded and finished as of a few weeks ago. As you will have heard in Play Diaries' other podcast, Press Play, and the episode around Wholesome Games, we've announced Amber Tale Games co-founder and Amber Isle creative director Jordan Bradley as part of the Season 6 guest lineup. She is the only name we're announcing before the full guest lineup reveal for Season 6. Not only that, I'll drop a little bit of knowledge on you. She will be the two-part season finale for Season 6. So if I'm dropping that bit of knowledge on you, you're probably wondering when Season 6 of My Favorite Game will begin airing. When the full guest lineup will be announced. You're probably not wondering that, but for the sake of this example, I'm going to just pretend that you are. I'm going to be that continuously teasing prick and not say the exact date just yet. But know that it is close. Like, really close. Like, details to be announced really soon close. So, that's my favourite game of 2021. I am legitimately stoked to get Season 6 of my favourite game into your ears very soon. And I do mean very soon. So keep it locked to PlayDiaries.com as well as our social media channels for all the details on the guest lineup and premiere date on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Play Diaries. And if you want to listen to episodes of Season 6 of My Favourite Game before they go out publicly, as well as future episodes of Press Play coming up in 2022, become a $2 tier podcast early access patron to our Patreon at patreon.com slash playdiaries. But like I've been saying, Season 6 is coming very, very soon. And I couldn't be more excited to get it all to you soon enough. If you listen to these episodes, usually I would have some sort of monologue at the end of these special episodes talking of the year at large and how games have helped play a huge part over the year or so. I won't do that too much here as one, let's be honest, they're a bit cliched. And two, there's a press play special coming up that reflects on the year that's just about the end anyway. But I will say this, over the course of the past two years with the pandemic, Games have played a huge part in keeping a lot of us company, and frankly sane, when in lockdown. They've kept us together with our friends and loved ones when most needed. Just look at, to give a few examples, Animal Crossing New Horizons and Final Fantasy XIV. In turn, developers have continued to make games at home in the middle of an unprecedented time our generation will not forget, and they absolutely deserve our thanks for the work they have put out at any time but especially over the course of the past two years. Even Sony and Microsoft have launched two new consoles over the course of this pandemic. Amid shortages and scalpers trying to hoard everything, the fact that we've got a new console generation over this pandemic is nothing short of impressive. So if there's one word I can think of that sums up this year, as well as the year before, and how meaningful games have been for us over the course of these past two years, it's this. Grateful. Because especially over the course of the past two years, we couldn't be more grateful for the role games have played.
So, with that, thanks for listening to my favourite game of 2021. My thanks to the list of guests who had joined us for this special. Too, too, too many to name across seasons 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and the Lost Tapes. Special shout out and thanks also to Christina McGrath. You know why, friend. Thank you. We'll see you very soon for season 6 of My Favourite Game. Until then, bye-bye. Oh, alright. I'll give you one last belated Christmas gift. There is one more thing I should probably reveal at this point. Season 6 of My Favourite Game will finally premiere on Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. We'll announce the full guest lineup and debut the full trailer for it on Thursday, January 13th in a special live stream on twitch.tv slash playdiaries. You can find more details on that and more on playdiaries.com. I did say details would be announced really soon close, didn't I? Okay, we're off for real now. We'll see you in a few weeks. Happy New Year! Bye!